So welcome everyone. Before we get started with the program today, um, I have a couple of quick announcements to make. I'm Peter Glazer. I'm a professor in the Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies, and I'm co-teaching this class with Stan Lai. And uh, every Thursday, uh, we meet Tuesdays and Thursdays as a class, 70 students from UC Berkeley. And on Thursdays, uh, we open the class to the public and have special guests to talk about specific work about their own practices and such. And um, we have a very exciting performance uh, to talk about today and a very exciting group of people to discuss it with you. Before I do that, I have a couple of things to say to the students. Um, because of Akram Khan's presence in Berkeley this uh, weekend, there are a number of other events about his work, um, some workshops, a variety of different things that Cal Performances has organized. And um, later today, by maybe this evening, I will be sending an email to all of the students in this class to give them to announce those events to them that are taking place this weekend in case any of you are interested in attending them. This is not a requirement, but those of you who have gotten interested in this work might enjoy learning a little more about it. And I will also say to the class that there's the possibility that some additional tickets will be opening up for students uh, to see the Akram Khan piece. And so if that's true, I will email you about that as well. So check your emails today. Also, for any, have everyone picked up tickets, Christian? Yes, all right. So all of you who are attending the performance on Sunday have picked up your tickets. Thank you very much. Um, there's also uh, a handout that if any of you are interested, you can pick up at the end of class that Christian will have, just some more information about Akram Khan and about um, what's happening at Cal Performances. So uh, let me introduce our two guests today. Uh, Rob Bayless is a musician, executive producer, and performing arts curator living in his native Bay Area. Beginning his career as a classical clarinetist, uh, Rob has performed with orchestras, chamber ensembles, as a, and as a recitalist across the U.S., Canada, Asia, and the U.K. In 2003, he was named director of ODC Theatre, San Francisco's leading experimental incubator for dance and contemporary performance. During his nearly decade-long tenure, he elevated the theatre's platform from regional to national and international visibility and was instrumental in the theatre's multi-million dollar expansion of its facility. In 2007, the San Francisco Chronicle named him MVP in dance presenting, describing his curation as smart, instinctive, and infectious. He's commissioned over 80 new works in a variety of genres and has served as an artistic peer review panelist and policy consultant for foundations and arts funding organizations. In June of 2013, he was appointed associate director of Cal Performances where he programs and produces the dance theater and world stage platforms and is the lead designer of the institution's signature curatorial and commissioning initiative, Berkeley's Radical. Berkeley Radical, excuse me. In 2018, he was appointed interim artistic director curating Cal Performance's 2019-2020 season. Akram Khan, our other guest, is one of the most celebrated and respected dance artists working today. In just over 18 years, he has created a body of work that has contributed significantly to the arts in the UK and abroad. An instinctive and natural collaborator, Khan has been a magnet to world-class artists from other cu cultures and disciplines, including actress Juliette Binoche, writer Hanif Qureshi, and, and composer Steve Reich, Nitin Sauhaini, and Ben Frost. His work is recognized as being profoundly moving, in which his intelligently crafted storytelling is effortlessly intimate and epic. Described by the Financial Times of London as an artist, quote, who speaks tremendously of tremendous things, 
A highlight of his career was the creation of a selection of a section of the London 2012 Olympic Games opening ceremony, which the students in the class have seen on video, that was received with unanimous acclaim. He's received numerous awards, including the Laurence Olivier Award, the Bessie Award, which is New York Dance and Performance Award, the International Society for Performing Arts Award, Distinguished Artist Award, the Fred and Adele Astaire Award, the Herald Archangel Award, at the Edinburgh International Festival, and on and on and on. He was awarded an MBE for Services to Dance in 2005. Um, we are thrilled to have him here today. Zenos performing at Cal Performances this weekend marks his final tour as a dancer. Please welcome Rob Bayless and Akram Khan. Welcome, everyone, and welcome Akram Khan. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Um, so there's so much to talk about today, but I, I wonder if we could just dive right in okay. by starting off with the, the, the genesis of your, your dance career and starting off as, as, as a young person in Katak. Um, I was uh, uh, three when my, my parents had moved to London um, straight after the independence of Bangladesh. So they had experienced war on a horrific scale between Bangladesh and Pakistan. So when they moved in early 70s, I was born three years after the independence. And so they really wanted me to keep up with culture, their culture and art, because that's what they fought for um, and lost family for. And so um, they forced me, I would say, I don't remember it, but I think they forced me um, as a three-year-old to um, play different roles. And that was fine. Uh, I... They would dress me in a sari. They would dress me in um, a lungi, which is like a male skirt, um, uh, traditional to Bangladesh. Um, and I would re- reenact all these kind of different folk dance. And then at seven, I kind of saw, well, I, not kind of, I saw Michael Jackson. <clears throat> and uh, I think that How do really... you kind of see Michael Jackson? <laughs> no, that's true. Um, and it was Thriller. Ah. And I thought... Uh, I was quite blown away by it, by the idea that not just by Michael Jackson himself, but just the idea of is this theatre, is it is it storytelling, or is this dance, or is this music? Mm-hmm. And they were quite inseparable. That 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 piece of um, that film actually MTV film of Thriller, and uh, so my mother uh, I think got got a bit freaked out. Um, because MJ is very far away from Bangladeshi culture, and then said, um, you know what, maybe he should do Indian classical dance. And then kind of, you know, took me to class, which was Kathak, and my guru is Sri Pratap Power, and I started with him, and uh, Kathak was the beginning of my journey of kind of, um, let's say, serious uh, training. Mm-hmm. And then 13, I'm trying to cut it down, 13, I, I uh, was very lucky to work with Peter Brook, on the Mahabharata, yeah. and that really, I think that um, that really uh, shaped my thinking today. Mm. The way I think today is because of Peter. Mm. I would say he had a huge influence, mm. and it's, you know, he was. He, 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 I was very moldable at that time. I was thirteen. I had no opinions. <clears throat> I was literally absorbing everything mm. like a child does. And then later, I came back and couldn't adjust to normal life after the tour. And so I went to uh, I started I went more heavily into Kathak again. <clears throat> it was either theatre or Indian classical dance, and I, I I felt more pulled towards Kathak. Mm. 
And then um, I went to university and discovered contemporary dance. Uh, for the first time, I had never, ever heard of contemporary dance. And, and yeah, and with um, Farouk Chaudhry, who's my producer of the company, right. we formed a company in 2000 after that. So. When you were talking about uh, Michael Jackson there for a moment and, and the, the way that that struck you, that, you know, is this, is this dance, is this theater, is this music, in, in an interesting way, that's a, a great metaphor, actually, for Katak, right? That it's, it's equally a musical form, a narrative storytelling form, or an abstract storytelling form, and, and it's, it's dance. It's all of those things. Um, and I wonder if, if you might talk a little bit about the, the way, the, the, the practice of those elements coming together in that form, if that if you feel that that's actually permeated how you've gone about becoming the creative artist that you've become, and if they've remained those essential draws to how you make, yeah, absolutely. I think it's. Um, I, I I would say that I see things through um, uh, a, a cut the eyes. Yeah, uh, occasionally I would take those glasses off and put William Forsythe glasses on. Um, so it would it would permeate it would change between the two mm-hmm. and i say william forsyth because he had a huge uh watching him and his work um and then he became a mentor to me mm-hmm. um i think somebody connected me with william forsyth uh, they, they knew him and they knew i was just coming out from the block and they said it would be great if you could st- you know spend time with william forsyth and so i have this relationship with bill um which is really weird because um he never talks about dance he only wanted to mentor me in homeopathic medicine. And I have no interest in homeopathic medicine. Or at that time, I didn't. And um, it was just a really uh, unusual relationship. But anyway, um, what was interesting was his um, the way he analyzed, the way he brought um, a kind of a science lab approach to movement was something that fascinated, fascinated me and not a way that I had worked with before. And so um, uh, looking at, mu- I mean, music, dance and theatre, um, I think as a Kathak dancer or as any Indian classical dancer, you have to be a musician yep. if you're a dancer. So when I was hearing music, it didn't matter if within a dance concert, um, if there was no dance at that moment, because it was movement anyway. The music was moving. So long as it's moving something, moving you or moving the audience or... Um, there's movement in everything. Mm-hmm. And even the storytelling, the story has to move forward. Um, and so in a sense, um, uh, they became equal partners for me. Um, uh, I use that kind of approach. Um, we, we don't work in a vertical system. I think that's quite old and it still exists, of course, um, uh, because it's patriarchal. Uh, we work more on a maternal approach. So, you know, the, um, the collaborators are, it's like a horizontal, it's like a King Arthur's round table where everybody has um, uh, has an opinion and is open to, uh, to, to, uh, to influence the work and to change the direction of the work. Of course, um, in the end, I have the final say, but I very, I don't intervene very often until we get closer to the end of the process. So the mu- composer has a very, very important voice in the work, and so does the scenographer, and so does the dramaturg, particularly the dramaturg. It's interesting with both Peter Brook and, and, and Forsyth, 
both famous users of silence and of empty space, um, particularly, you know, Peter Brook's famous yeah. uh, notion that the, the theater emerges from the blank space and that it doesn't get put in it, it comes through it. Um, and I think in, in some sense, um, the way that, uh, that you have pulled together these, um, you know, obviously very much through, through your own lens and through the experience of your own, own, own lived, uh, your own lived experience and your own, your own body and your own artistic vision, these components that, that really seem to have been there from the very beginning, that there, that there is a musical essence to the work, that there is always the need to be in communication and in a loop with an audience um, and not just before them. Um, and that the dance is actually a place. It's actually a thing that's a, that, that inhabits as opposed to presents. These things really seem to be driving the conversation for you and, and really at, as a, uh, a consistent line through all of the work. Um, I think my mother had a huge influence in the way I thought because my grandfather, my mother's father, was um, a genius mathematician. He was two times gold medalist of India in mathematics. Um, and so when my mother was born, um, um, the, the entire Bangladeshi community thought, oh, it's a woman. Nah, she's not good at maths. And my mother, uh, being the feminist that she is, and strong, strong, powerful woman that she is, she said, well, fuck you. I'm not going to even do maths because I don't want to prove to you if I'm good or not. I'm not even going to go in that direction because I have nothing to prove to you. And she went into literature. And so she became super, uh, uh, she absorbed herself in Greek mythology, Hindu mythology, um, Judaism, Islam, Christianity. All these myths she, uh, she just researched and studied for her own, you know, I think, in a sense, to uh, rebel against the community. But then she fell in love with the subjects, the subject itself, um, literature. Um, so when I was born, um, we grew up in South London, and there was really this entire Bangladeshi community in South London that believed that I was God of maths. <laughs> and it's really difficult because um, you don't understand why people are treating you in such a sacred way. But after a while, you just take it as norm that, yes, I must be God of maths. Um, and so, you know, when it's simple things like it really affects, especially when you're a child, it really affects you in some way. So, you know, when we're having a party and there's the table, no, no kid can start with the food unless I have taken first. And the aunties would say, no, 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 him first, him first. You know, the god of maths. And so we would, we, what was interesting was um, when it came to A-level, I did my A-level maths and I f failed. And I got a U. Now, in, in, I don't know if you've got the same system here. You've got A, B, C, grades are A, B, C, D, E, F, I think. And then U is unclassifiable. <laughs> it's that bad. It's not even worth. So I got a U and I was so shocked. Like I said to Ma, I think, you know, these, the people who marked it must have got it wrong. So I'll do it again. So I got a U again. And the third time I got a U, I went to my mum and said, I think, I, I, I think the community's got it wrong. I don't, th I don't think I'm good at maths. And um, I went into dance uh, to study dance at university because I was going to study maths. Um, I think by default, what was interesting was um, I became, because I believed I was so good at maths, I became infatuated with patterns mm -hmm. and rhythms and mathematics on a more spiritual way 
Um, and so uh, uh, it's interesting by imagining, by, by, by living a lie, <laughs> my truth then came out, um, which actually I was quite, quite good at um, uh, patterns mm -hmm. and geometry and structures. So uh, that had a huge influence. So my mother, uh, it all stems back from my mother, really. Um, so, again, that's connected to William Forsyth yep. because of his uh, scientific approach. Because the body for us uh, in Indian classical dance, it's a spiritual body. It's a sacred body. Um, and uh, uh, William Forsyth, uh, Bill, really saw it as a tool um, to dissect, to open up. It was a scientific body. It was something to explore and experiment with. And so to have those, the tension between the two is... is, is um, determined a lot of my own research and my own work. The, I mean, certainly the, the, the powerfully mathematical element of Katak. So, you know, we'll, 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 uh, we'll leave that one right there. Um, but I, I wonder, as we're, you're beginning to talk a little bit about influences and partnerships, um, let's step a little further ahead in, in, in your, your career. We'll come back a little bit to the, this moment of, of synthesis that was going on for you in, in university. But let's, let's step a little bit ahead and talk about a couple of partnerships that um, that you've sought out to, to frame this work and to collaborate with. Um, throughout your, your career, you've you know, always said that it's a team, that there's a huge team around you, an enormous amount of support, and that you as a director are operating as a visionary within that team, but it's very, you know, very involved with other people. Um, so I want to speak a little bit about collaboration and, and talk about that in, in your work. And specifically, I wanted to maybe start off talking about Toro Baca and talking about sacred monsters. Um, so, you know... Maybe let's let's start off with Israel Galvan and, and talk a little bit about about Torobaka and about the the relationship with with flamenco and Katak and both of you being extremely experimental artists in in, in your own right and in in these fields. Um, Israel Galvan is um, a kind of um, a rebel. Um, he's there to make sure that you fall over. That's his that's his personality. He's there to make sure that if we are calm, I think his natural instinct is how can I um, start a fire and create chaos? Um, and I'm the exact opposite of that. If there's fire, the first thing I'm trying to do is to, to, to get water and <laughs> to extinguish it. So you have two opposites. He's a, a, he's a mad kind of warrior, uh, and I'm a kind of... Uh, pretend or assuming monk um, and so the both of us came together in the beginning and it was quite complex because I, I uh, we both had to learn from each other how to listen again because um, even though flamenco and katak shares the same roots um, previously our masters have done it before they've, they've presented katak and flamenco right. and I didn't and, and I always found it superficial I always find fusion superficial um, because um, it's not going from a deeper place than the form itself. They just, they just, it's just about, you know, I do one, one pose and the flamenco dancer does a one pose and it's similar uh, in the similar direction and it makes it fusion. I'm being, I'm, I'm being crass about it, but um, that for me was never enough. You know, I'm doing cut the footwork. Somebody's doing tap we're doing the same rhythm or we're doing question and answer. It does not interest me. <laughs> um, it, it, uh, there are fundamental questions I'm interested in of the human condition. 
How, how, what is the story, the deep story of a gypsy, flamenco artist? Um, what is the uh, deeper story of of me training in Kathak? Or you know, so I was I was always interested in the person, um, and so working with him was fascinating because every time I tried to find some kind of balance, he would uh, uh, tip it over, mm. and I realized that actually he lives on the edge of uh, the unknown. Um, and I create an illusion of the edge, <laughs> but live in a very controlled um, situation like Xenos. Xenos yep. is, everything is meticulously planned and thought out. Once you're on stage, you're not in control. But still, the surrounding your nature, everybody's everybody who's who's working towards that piece, whether it's the lighting or the people who are throwing earth over, uh, or the prop and the people, you know, the technicians pulling the ropes, everything is calculated. And then, because I'm the author and the only performer, I can manipulate it. I can change it if I want. Um, but I know that even if I change it, I know that my technicians are going to. I'm going to arrive at a place where it's always going to be consistent, where the technician has put the prop that I need for the next scene. Whereas with Israel, he's so courageous um, that he could walk into a, stu uh, a performance with no baggage, not knowing what he's going to do. Very Peter Brook. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with me, uh, I, I would walk in with... Uh, something in my head prepared. Like, okay, now I'm going to do this composition and that composition. Um, so he's, he's, he's closer to an animal in, a, in, a, in, a, in many ways, uh, a wild animal, extremely instinctive because he trusts his instincts. Um, uh, and I, 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 more, I work more emotionally and psychologically um, and so I do a lot more preparation in a different way to him. So I learned a lot from him, actually, because it, 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 it allowed me to trust the more instinctual uh, part of being a dancer. Um, and one of the things, we, it was interesting because we couldn't come to an agreement of what is going to be the deep narrative of the show. So we compromised and said, okay, you know what, in a good way, and we said, we'll do a concert. <laughs> so it will be... Um, I do a number, you do a number, and then we do something together. Um, and, and, and we will play with the idea of absurdity. Because when we came together and people heard about it, they were like, oh my God, there's this young master of Kathak and there's a young master of flamenco. And so um, we looked at it like this. If, if David Lynch was a Kathak dancer... And Stanley Kubrick was a flamenco dancer. What would that relation, what would they create together? And so we thought, well, let's play on the absurdity of that. So we came on, this was our first um, preview. So we came on and we stand on stage and it's silence and the audience there. And then I'd say, master, you begin. And he'd say, no, no, you're the bigger master, you begin. And then I'd say, no, you're the biggest master, you begin. And this went on for f about eight minutes. You didn't resurrect God of Maths. No. <laughs> no. But eight minutes of doing this, um, was, that was the absurdity of people's expectation we were playing on. In the end, we watched the video and we said, no, we're going to cut that. 
that's just that's just entertaining ourselves. Nobody else got it. <laughs> People were about to walk out. So uh, um, he 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 for for me working with him um, was interesting because if he was very similar to me, I don't think I would have I would have learned much. I like to work with collaborators who are who think very differently to me, which brings its own challenges because you're creating a baby together, really. And uh, if if you're going to create a baby together, um, you do want to get on with the person you're creating the baby with. Um, and you know there are, of course, divorce does happen after the baby is born. Um, you know, with it was very tough working with Juliet Binoche. That was a really tough project, but I learned so much from it. It was probably my um, most important collaboration because I, I it was it was the toughest because we had very different views nobody was i'm not saying i was right or she was right or she i was wrong or she was it was really about we had different expectations and so when i go into a project now as we do more and more duets uh, or collaborations i i try to understand where that person is and what they want to achieve from this collaboration right. and not just completely fall in love with each other's idea project the idea of working together that's not enough it, it we have to question what is it that you where do you want to go with this process and and that's that's a tougher question oh. yeah. can we talk a little bit about about the work with sylvie gim and and sacred monsters that that came here um and you know another, another duet another thing that was was uh of an extraordinary nature yeah that was that was um it was a beautiful experience working yes. with Sylvie. She was, um, uh, she's, um, she's an artist, so she she has an opinion about. Um, she cares about everything, even the lights, even the costume, even the dramaturgy, and she immerses herself um, in every aspect of the work. She's not a dancer. That's the difference between a dancer and an artist. A dancer is there that you. Um, work with to execute or to um, uh, uh, to tell your story, mm-hmm. but an artist is completely challenging all your decisions and choices. Yeah. They're they're more three hundred and sixty, and so working with her was really fascinating because um, she comes from a classical um, training ballet. I come from classical Indian dance training, and so we shared this, this similarity. What's similar between both of us, in a sense, is that um, we shared this love for ritual of rigor, of training. And power without control um, is nothing. Um, You need control over that power. I I wish the um, politicians understood that. That's another story. Um, But control only comes when you submit to a discipline. And that's what we shared. But at the same time, we had a similar kind of history where, um, you know, she was um, kind of not thrown out, but she was a little bit pushed away from the classical when she wanted to explore contemporary or more modern, with working with contemporary choreographers or modern choreographers. And then the classical world kind of went, oh, well, you're not, you know, you're not a classical dancer anymore. And the same thing happened to me. Where you know, um, once I shaved my hair, mm-hmm. that was it. Yeah. <laughs> you don't represent Kathak anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you know, as a Kathak dancer, 
my gurus and the previous generation all had curly hair or long hair and um you're not resembling anything like krishna mm-hmm. so we want to, i wanted to talk about those stories on stage hers was sally yep. from charlie brown mm-hmm. um she was fascinated by sally and i was fascinated by krishna mm-hmm. um partly because i didn't have hair so this sense of trying to achieve attain the image of krishna and then i realized it it was it's not a, it's not about the hair <laughs> krishna is much much more than that and do you become do you stop being um an artist of a particular form because your appearance changed because you don't so that's culturally connected mm-hmm. and i uh, and i think it was peter brook again i go back to peter brook because peter brook did the mahabharata in a way that n- n- i don't think indian choreo- indian art directors would have done it because peter brook saw it differently because he comes from a very different culture and he was interested in the essence of the narrative not about the codification right. and the codification of a person and their mannerisms and their identity um uh, is informed by a particular culture that's not what he was interested in he was interested in the essence of the story and really mahabharata is about families and it's about uh, it's there to be an example of what can go wrong and right in families it's about relationships and uh, again that was peter's uh, influence on me and so working with sylvie it was really about um, trying to uh, talk about our us both being thrown out of the classical world and then trying to find the classical in what we do you can't not be a classical dancer no i think once you as you say submit to uh either discipline or technique or whatever you know whichever of those tools you want to speak to it, it it's a permanent embodiment i think it's there forever the body remembers the body always knows um how you want to work with that aesthetically becomes the journey and how that becomes a process of 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 filters and of lenses and of of ways that you'll apply a point of view um that takes on an entirely different shape. Um, you know, as, as does the whole nature of, of how you're making, whether you're making through improvisation, whether you're making through a much more scripted or dramaturged um, view of how you're going to handle space and time over the course of a performance. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to me that you always choose the most disruptive route, right? You, you always seem to go to that place where you're going to be specifically the most challenged um, and to take your, you know, incredible toolkit and your un you know really unduplicated aesthetic and all the things that are just with you every day um always to that place where they're the most challenged and i think that that certainly comes from a a certain amount of safety in terms of having a really incredible team around you but but the challenge artistically in each work is really dramatic um I wonder if if that's a, a moment for us to actually step in, into what you're going to be doing here and to talk about Zenos a little bit and um this being kind of as you said the the end of a performing arc for you as a soloist um and what the piece is carrying both for you personally and and as its its own artwork well xenos means um it's a greek word which means um stranger or foreigner and uh, in um or even guest actually um but in 2017 when we decided to work on my full length last full length solo um i was curious um about some about doing something on prometheus i've always wanted to tackle greek mythology and prometheus was a rebel especially against his father and i was like oh that's me 
you know, against my father. Um, and there, there were stories of him stealing fire, of course, and giving it to mankind, and me stealing fire, matches from my dad's restaurant, um, in dad's Indian restaurant, and, and burning the living room. Uh, um, <laughs> but I was young. It was not my fault. I mean, it was my fault, but anyway... Um, so there, there was uh, what happened was um, my sister said, "I dare you to um, oh, we watched something on TV, and there was fire, and I was like, oh, I can create that, I can create that." So I went to the kitchen st- downstairs because we lived above my dad's restaurant, and I took the matches, and I was trying to spark it. And unfortunately, I, I got my sister's um, socks on fire, and she was six, and I was ten, and then I, I was freaked out by fire, and I was, but at the same time, I was infatuated by it. And my sister's going, it's hot, it's hot, it's hot. And I was like, oh, okay. So I took the socks off and then put it uh, on the floor, but except that it was carpeted. And so that was an experience. Um, but anyway, Prometheus was something I, I wanted to explore. <laughs> and uh, I think in 2018, um, we were, well, in 2017, we were invited by 1418 Now, this incredible organization, right. powerful organization that wanted to commemorate and explore uh, they they commissioned artists to make something about the First World War, which was 1914-1918, and so it was 2014-18, hundred years on, <clears throat> and um, we were like, okay, let's let's have a look at this. Let's let's see what's in there, and as we were delving into it in 2018, loads of articles were coming out about the about colonial soldiers, right. and to my horror, four million colonial soldiers had fought fought for the British Empire. And 1.4 of those were Indian sepoys. And I was very angry because I didn't, I never studied that history. Because history is predominantly written by Western, his story is written by the Western man, the white man. Because they're the victors, predominantly in, in Western history, of course. So um, uh, it, it really upset me that their story was omitted or edited out of history. Um, and it's interesting because history is fa- fascistic. fascistic. It's a fascist con- uh, concept. Um, uh, mythology is what I've always been fascinated by. Is um, It aligns itself closer to d- um, democracy. Uh, it's more democratic mm-hmm. than history. Because mythology, myth, the etymology of myth means to speak. I was just talking about this uh, yesterday, but it means to speak. So it's, it, it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, it's about remembering. The telling. The telling of it, yeah. and then you you keep it to memory. Right. History is about writing it down. So you have experts, and suddenly you have these specialists who enforce that for it to be um, for it to be history that is uh, more sacred than myth. It, you have to write it down, and then it becomes history. But who's the person writing it? Who's the person holding the pen? Write it down and and have it. Agreed upon, right? Write it down and, and have it codified in a, in exactly. a whole different manner. Yeah. Than, yeah. And so we wanted to look at the archives um, of the First World War, all the archives, <clears throat> and then we started discovering little, little stories. Right. We had uh, Jordan Tannehill, who's this incredible young Canadian Fantastic writer. Playwright. Fantastic playwright. playwright. Um, and with Ruth Little uh, uh, and all the collaborators, we were just digging stuff out and unearthing stuff. And so um, we wanted to tell the stories uh, of, of... We wanted to represent the colonial soldiers that were omitted out of history, basically, um, in a more mythological way. Um, 
because you know history is uh, uh, they say that history is the truth John Cocteau said history is the truth but over a long period becomes a lie and myth is a lie but over a long period becomes the truth and um we were also wanting to play with timelines um because the soldier is um a shell-shocked soldier and so uh it was very much at least psychologically for us based on time um am i living in the present am i living in the past am i living in the future and i i always use this example cuz so so beautiful people perceive time differently different cultures perceive time differently children perceive time differently to adults um and uh, there was a there's a, a amazonian tribe where um there was a jo- american journalist photographer who uh, came across this Am- amazonian tribe and he offered them his idea of time the western time and he said well in clock time in the western civilization um future is in front of you you go towards the future and the past is behind you because it's gone and the tribe the chief of the tribe said oh it's interesting because for us the past is in front of you because you can see it the future is behind you because you cannot see it so um the idea of time the concept of time is something um i think that's the biggest clash we're having uh, in our civilization right now um one of them um because <laughs> uh you have the feminine time which is the horizontal time which is the, uh, sorry the um which is the spiral time uh which is the philoso- uh, emotional time which is the nature time which is feminine time which is ritualistic time which is life and death time and then you have the a uh, clock time which is christianized time which is westernized time which is masculine time um which is industrial time which is money time and i was just saying this yesterday in 1913 uh when we had the audacity to tell the world that everybody must follow a global time from the eiffel tower in 1913 the first beep 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 went out yep but it was funny because i was reading uh uh on an, uh, in another article that stravinsky of course did write a spring right also in the same year yeah. so on the very year in 1913 where we are saying that everybody must be forced to follow our time the global time we are going to determine what the time is um stravinsky was making right a spring which was about sacrificing the human for time for nature time to move forward and in a sense um i think that's where we've arrived i think humans have to be sacrificed for the earth to continue we've we've positioned ourselves in such a way and i think that's you know i'm constantly amazed about um i mean amy's my assistant and i love her to bits she's brilliant but at the same time we're always talking about um the lunch breaks <laughs> and we have become we've become obsessed with dividing time so 10 minute toilet break 5 minute coffee so with even within the lunch breaks we all doing it we are dividing time because it's almost um arbitrary it's 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 um it has no um organicness to it it's not real it's an illusion it's mathematical so we've lost our sense of nature time and so i'm i'm always struggling with this kind of um uh dealing with this kind of system of clock time which is controlling my life but at the same time when when i see my children they're in eternal time mm-hmm. 
You know, our ego apparently lasts, no, our sense of the present lasts three seconds. So we think in the present for about three seconds, that's the max. Um, and uh, our egos is, of course, associated with that, that present. But children don't see past and future yet. They don't see forward and back, especially small children. So when I say to my children, I'm going to the airport, I'll be back. Um, two weeks later. They don't know if that's a day or a... It just feels forever for them mm-hmm. that I'm away. Um, so their perception of time is different. They're the ocean time. They're closer to ocean time, which is the old time, um, which is the eternal time. And so in a sense, um, I, a lot of my work is becoming about time, mm-hmm. even particularly starting with... I mean, not starting with Xenos. All my work has always been about time, to some degree or not. I think the elimination of time is... Um you know, it's a profoundly musical idea. You know, it's sort of, this is what rhythm is. It's, yeah. it's an organization of space. It's not a declaration of it. So there are, there are ways in which, you know, if you're thinking about a form that's driven by music or driven by, you know, rhythmic occurrence or organizations of sound in, in time, in a sense, it's also taking away the power of that progress and owning it for a completely different expressive purpose. So that opens the window of the imagination, opens the window of possibility to, to creation. I mean, you're, you're right there in your own creation myth when you talk about the essence of rhythm. That's it. And I think that that's, you know, certainly to me, that's one of the great draws to watching dance is that you get to see the embodiment of all of that. And, you know, and, you know, for, for me coming to with this as a classical musician, or at least that was my entry point, um, you know, that was certainly a, a huge effect on me in watching dance initially is that, you know, I, I had a way in because I had a deep understanding of rhythm. Um, not that bodies were literally moving in time, but that the understanding of what it, what it is to relate at an aesthetic level to the manipulation of space is something that we get. Um, and I think as we're all viewers, that's the invitation to each of you, that when you're looking at something, you're not responsible for understanding it. You're not. You're just there to actually experience it. And whatever windows open in you are actually opening. That's it. That's what's going on for you. You know, the artist doesn't own that. The stage doesn't own it. The producer doesn't own it. You do. So that 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 sort of power, you know, and that opportunity, for me, the work I love the best is the work that... that really challenges me to to do that when I'm sitting in the theater or offers that opportunity to just bend time and space in that way. It's really beautiful what you said because, um, in a sense, what happens on stage uh, or in a theater is is that you bend, you bend time and you go closer to um, another kind of time away from your everyday time, clock time. Um, in, Bur- in Burundi, they have this... Um, <laughs> they have this... Uh, 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 Time is characterized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's not. It's not a. It's not um, three o'clock, four o'clock. So, in particular uh, um, times of the year when it's pitch black, they call it a "Who are you night?" Who are you night? Because they can't see you. So it's so beautiful that, that they have a character. It's characteristic, um, and I think dance is and music is able to do that as well. It characterizes time away from the clock time. This mundane, mechanical false thing let's come back to to xenos for for a minute and um you know i I, i've had the pleasure of seeing seeing the work and and it's just extraordinary um and i hope all of you will will be with us over the weekend um 
I want to talk a little bit about um, the fact that for just a, at a surface level, it's it's one of the more actually classical works, you, you, you know, you, in, amongst the solos. It really relies heavily on, um, on kind of going back to, to roots in Katak. And, and um, I, was, I was actually surprised to see that I kind of expected something to be quite different. Um, and it was, it was, it's just remarkable, but I wonder if you would talk about the presence of that. And did you feel like that was more of a cultural inheritance that belonged in that work or was it just sort of no. the aesthetic that called out to you? No, that was my ego. I, 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 I wanted to finish where I started. I wanted to finish my last full length solo where I started to pay homage. And because I'm the director, I could manipulate the story. So the, um, um, actually most of my collaborators kept, fighting me on it they said why would the indian colonial soldier why do you want to do indian dance you know how will that connect to the colonial soldier in the trenches i said we're going to make it we're we're magicians we're storytellers the storyteller will always never can never tell the story the same way it will always change the second time they say it so we can manipulate it we can transform it and what we discovered was that soldiers all soldiers not just colonial soldiers but all soldiers have another life before they were brought into the war. Um, some of them are bakers. Some of them are engineers. And the Indian colonial soldiers were predominantly there to lay cables because it was the most disorganized war of all time. It was the first world war. So, they weren't um, good at it yet. No, and not efficient at all. So the Indian colonial soldiers were there to literally lay cables so they could have communication between um, one, one group and the other group because nobody knows what the hell was happening. And um, uh, I, well, I, I thought, well, actually, maybe this particular colonial soldier that I'm inhabiting was a Kathak dancer in the courts of Nawab. Mm-hmm. And um, that's what it became. So um, that was my excuse uh, to, have, to do Kathak again. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it was, it was, it was not just... Um, there was a very personal reason why Kathak was there. Um, but at the same time, it couldn't just be Kathak. It had to be affected in some way for it to, to be in the work. It had, to, it couldn't, of course, you, I can't just do Kathak for the sake, because I want to do Kathak. It has to relate to the narrative. It has to serve the narrative, not serve me. So then we started to affect the Kathak. So we started to deconstruct it a little bit and um, um, make it feel like, um, is this a memory or am I in the past? Has this happened or is this a dream while I'm laying on the trenches mm-hmm. of the time that I, I was a, that I want to be a Kathak dancer or was I a Kathak dancer? And so once the recital, the classical part ends, you start to see that all, I won't say too much about it, but all the furniture and my memory starts to disappear. Right. And I'm called to the trenches. So um, we had to really in, invest a lot in transforming the katak or the intention of every movement that it was suspicious. Every katak movement I did was suspicious because I'm not sure if I'm living it in the present or if it's happened or if I'm dead now. Mm-hmm. Am I dreaming about, you know, is this a spiritual dream in, in the afterlife? So I had to create that doubt because as a Catholic dancer, you're always you're you're not as you're not as cocky as or macho as flamenco dancers. Um, Catholic has still the humility. Here's you Maharaj. Yeah, <laughs> might be. <laughs> yeah, but you know it's interesting because that's coming back to Israel Galvan. Right. Um, 
when I met Israel Glavan, the first thing he said after my show, uh, he came and saw the show, he says, he's very sweet. And he goes, oh, Akram, it's so nice to meet you. You master, you master. Um, but, you know, if we dance together, I, I, I stab you. I kill you. And I was like, that's a really shocking thing to say <laughs> in our first meeting. Um, maybe, maybe two meetings later you could have said that. But that, So I was quite traumatized by that. And he said, no, no, because and then if the audience threatened me, then I kill them too. And that is his perception of his approach of flamenco. You are absolutely a warrior. You are the bull. Um, And for me, it's about running away. I've always been the runner away guy. So I used to play rugby. And um, whenever there was a confrontation, um, um, it was strange that I was playing rugby um, with my physicality. Um, But they used to keep me there because I used to run like hell. And I would be running around the pitch and um, they would be saying, go this way, not that way, go this way, this way. And I I, I asked, why did you keep me? Many years later, I came back to the school because I had to do a talk and I said to my PE teacher, why did you keep me? He said, because nobody could catch you. And I was like, well, if you give me a ball and you have six foot guys chasing me, I'm running to protect my body because I have cut the class in the evening. And um, so I was a very fast runner. Um, But... Uh, uh, the point I'm trying to make is um, it's not about running away but it's more about when you enter the studio to learn Kattak or the place you're going to learn in a classroom you touch the floor first so already a sense of humility and the space becomes sacred so it's a it's it's a very different approach to um, to flamenco (laughs) You know, it's not fireworks. Um, you can be fireworks, but that's a, I, I feel that's more of a... I think the firework element, the showmanship element, has never really interested me. Partly, partly perhaps because my own guru um, really um, instilled that in me, the showmanship, the fast turns, the footwork. It, that for me is, is just... Um, that, that for me is... Um, yeah, it's just one part of it, let's say. It's to get claps from the audience. It's to see how impressive. It never impressed me. It, it, it never really touched me. Um, I'm interested in the human condition, <laughs> the human narrative. So the submission, the sense of um, uh, 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 sacredness it, it was very important. Certainly all forms uh, you know, have their pageantry that, that uh, creates that, that attraction. Yeah, and one one would always hope that that's all that it is, and that behind that, of course, in everything, there's um, human potential, human action, and 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 human uh, contribution. Um, Flamenco, I would say, is extrovert in its approach. Absolutely. And Kathak, the way I look at Kathak is more it's about introvert, being an introvert. Yeah. You said something uh, just a minute ago, and I, I want to come back to to that about just just walking into the studio and. Um, it would be great to, to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what in your practice have you ritualized and what in your practice is, is different every time? I probably do the same thing every time. So every day I will train for an hour and a half in a very intense uh, tempo, kattak, um, um, but the same thing. And it's probably the most simplest thing at a very fast speed. Um, because I was always fascinated by um, Bandibiju Maharaj, who always said he just does da 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 da, just 
um, just a very simple footwork pattern, and he's trying to hear God whisper there. I mean, Maharaji, for many of his amazing qualities, his footwork is so musical. It's never, it's never acrobatic. It's it's pure music, and you could close your eyes and listen to him. Also, a lot of silence. A lot of silence. Yes. and so, in a sense, uh, I practice something very, very simple. Um, it's I never do tukras. Mm-hmm. I never do complex compositions because I know it's in my body already. Mm-hmm. I do the fundamental, basic things, um, and then, unfortunately, um, I have to train with gym work for an hour and a half. So it's all strengthening. It's all preventing injury, and that's the bit that I really hate um, because it's 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 not something I enjoy. It's just something, it's just, yeah, carrying weights and doing lifts and um, because my body is, unless I change the way I move (laughs) and I still have a big ego as I dance. So I I, I want to still keep the way I move. I still want to do the way I move uh, uh, as I used to do 10 years ago. Um, But the body's saying, no, Um, you push me to that space, um, I'm going to kick you. And so I do a lot of training to to silence the body, to calm the body down. There's a lot of caressing the body. I love you, I love you, take your time, you'll be fine. Please save me on stage. Don't let me go. And it's funny because Israel Galvan and I, um, there's a five-minute ritual before the show where we're completely fucking terrified to the point where every show we would come and meet and before the show we'd say, do you think if, if um, do you think we could tell Rob that one of us is injured, so we could not do the show because we're so fucking terrified. We both suffer the same syndrome, symptom. And so we would every night make an excuse to ourselves. We didn't dare to say it to the producers. Um, um, but we needed to say that, okay, we, need, we came up with really inventive excuses um, of um, why we should cancel the show. And then the musicians who knew us well by that point said, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And then we would go behind and we're facing opposite ends. And the moment we stepped on, um, everything disappears. All fear disappears. Because what what we realized was that um, when we're worrying about it, we're actually thinking in the future of what might go wrong. And we're thinking about the past of what has gone wrong. And the moment you enter the stage, you're in the eternal present. And so um, you wouldn't think, really, that uh, just a few minutes before, we were trying to cancel the show. So. I've been backstage with a lot of people who do that. So. Oh, really? <laughs> Not surprised. Um, let's talk a little bit about, um, just to, to be a little more abstract, um, uh, just about uh, your process in general. And... Um, you know, you've mentioned the things that, that you do physically, um, but there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of layers in your work in terms of working with a dramaturg, working with, or any other form of dramatist, working with all of your your um, design elements and, and pieces, which are just as meticulously crafted as every element of, of the dance. And I wonder if you talk a little bit about that and, and even specific to, to Zenos and, and working with, with Jordan and those kinds of questions. Um it's it's really hard to talk about process. I find it really hard, um, partly because um, partly because I, I I don't know. It, it's I, I can try, 
to talk about it. Um, it's so instinctively driven, the process. Um, even though I prepare a lot, but once I enter the space with another person, um, whether it's in an office or room or in the studio, um, I completely let go, in a sense. Completely meaning, to my mind, I let go of everything I've been preparing. And then the process begins only when dialogue begins, when a movement happens between two people. Mm. I can never work alone. Like I was in Williamstown before I was here. I don't know if you know Williamstown. It's in Massachusetts. It's really in the middle of nowhere. And there was snow. And it's a beautiful place, but there was nobody there. It was like a ghost town. It was beautiful, but I was alone. And my team left because they wanted to come to San Francisco. They had a week, so they wanted to come here. I said, no, I'm an artist. I'm going to contemplate and be by myself. I was freaked out the first day I was alone, almost crying. Like, nobody loves me. I'm alone. I need to talk to someone. So I started collaborating with the receptionist. But the receptionist was not very interested in what I had to say. Um, so I went back to my room. I did some research. and it was, So for me, I begin work the moment I engage with someone. That, for me, is the beginning of, of anything. Everything else I do in isolation, I, I take it in and I just absorb and then I let go. If it stays, it stays. It's not important. What, what is the most important is the moment I start the conversation. So um, the lighting designer, the composer, the first thing I say is I don't want anyone to bring their title with them. So Ruth isn't a dramaturg. I'm not the director or the choreographer. Um, Michael Hulse is not the lighting designer. Mirella Weingarten is not the scenographer. Jordan Tannell, which means the walls are erased. You don't have to wait to talk your turn, tell your, uh, wait for your turn to talk when it's only about lighting if you're a lighting designer. You can say what you need to say if you instinctively, you're a creator. So tell me, if you have an opinion about the composition, tell me about the composition, even if you're a lighting designer. So I speak, so suddenly you have this kind of traffic of everybody talking about all the elements. So you don't treat dance special or lighting special. Um, it's whatever serves the narrative. So, you know, if, if I can't dance it, that part of the story, and actually the lighting is saying it better, then the lighting is the body telling the story. However, I do choose people who are much better than me. That is a rule. Um, so I work with people who are far more, who I feel I can learn from. So the collaborators aren't people that, I, I, um, that, uh, uh, that I'm teaching. Usually I'm learning from them. Mm -hmm. uh, and so there is this kind of um, wallless place, uh, a roaming ground. And from there we collect information, collect ideas, thoughts, um, to the point where nobody can claim. The Mirella Weingarten, the sonographer, cannot claim she did the set. Mm -hmm. Just as I cannot claim that I did the choreography. Mm. We say it officially, but it's a really, really different way of working. And we love, I love this. This is my way of working. I, I just completely love it. Um, uh, uh, so in the end, like for example, Until the Lions is a piece that I made. Um, uh, and Ruth Little, uh, Tim Yip is a scenographer. So he's a wonderful scenographer who won the Oscar for uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. 
he did the sonography for that. Um, and so there was this huge bark of a tree in Until the Lions. Um, Tim can't claim for that. He can't claim it. Even though he's the title, he's the, it was Ruth. So, you know, it, but yes, Tim is responsible for guiding it to that vision. Right. But Ruth, Tim said something that then Ruth went, what about bark of a tree? What if that's the stage? And so that became the stage. And Tim said, that's it. But it couldn't have happened without Tim and it couldn't have happened without Ruth. It couldn't have happened without me. It's really um, through dialogue we arrive in a place where you forget who's, where this, who was the origin of that seed. Right. And is that dialogue, is it being done as table work? Is it being done literally in the studio as no, you're building we spend, the um, The dialogue continues all the way through. But the first year is um, collecting. So it's the conception. It's about collecting, I, I, um, gathering collaborators. And then the second half of it is really about um, I plant a seed a formless hunch that Peter Brook would yeah. call it, which is a smell or a color or an image or an idea. Uh, and that seed would then be um, nourished um, by the collaborators collecting poems, um, images, stories, anything really that relates to that one seed, even if it's at a huge tangent. Then the second year would be uh, um, uh, going into a studio for about... Um, six weeks, usually. And six weeks would be research. So it's playtime. Yeah. And that's expensive, to call it playtime. Yeah. But I we invest a lot in that playtime. So um, we stick up all the stuff on the walls, usually, um, in that playtime. Uh, all the things that we've collected over that six months or a year before. And then we just go, okay, why don't we start with this? This looks interesting. Or one of the answers might say, oh, let's start with this. And we play with no um, no commitment. And the more absurd it is, the better. Because I'm interested in the child body and the child mind. Because we're as we are educated out of creativity as we get older. That is the education system. It is to educate us out of creativity, out of individuality. It's to conform us to society. And so I try to return back to the child body. And so um, anything is possible in those six weeks. It doesn't mean it's all going to go on stage, but that's not the point. It's just literally to see what would happen by accident if a magical thing happened. You know, um, something that we would not have thought of if I felt that, okay, no, we have to make a piece. That's why I free that six weeks, I call it, just playtime. And then we spend two, three months in creation, um, working towards something that's going to go on stage. So really, it's it's almost a two-year process for you? Three, actually, yeah. Um, I'm, I've just narrowed it down to two years, but it's it start, the collecting the collaborators is a huge dialogue, uh, a dialogue that happens over a whole year before we get into a... Because it's, you know, the people you work with, you're going to be spending a very intimate amount of time. You know, of, of, uh, you're going to be talking about... Um, your baby that you're going to make together. So you have to get it. You have to know that that's the person you want to work with. And you have to feel that they have the same commitment. I I do work with collaborators. I'm very, very grateful because I work with collaborators who immerse themselves. So they shut off from the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And these days it's really difficult to do that when you're famous. And if you want to work with a big name, they give you a certain amount of time and say, well, look, I can give you two weeks. Even I, I do that. 
when people commission me. But then when people work with me, <laughs> I have double standards. I'm like, no. <laughs> you're either in it all the time. I don't know why I'm doing an Indian accent. But anyway, you're either in it all the time or, um, yeah, or, or, it's, or, or we're not doing it. It doesn't matter how famous you are. Um, this is a, a, a big big week for you in, in the U.S., not just for Xenos, but also uh, this wonderful commission of yours uh, from the English National Ballet, that your wonderful Giselle is, is being performed in, in Chicago. Um, just, a, you know, an incredibly massive work and a massive undertaking. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny thing when you think about English National Ballet, Akram Khan, and Giselle. It's, you know, all of these things are so far apart from each other in certain respects. I wonder if you would talk just a little bit about the making of that piece and, um, you know, how, how that side of your process works. And then we'll, we'll open up for some questions. Well, Giselle was, um, it was a bit weird because I was in Japan and um, an artistic director contacted me from a ballet company. I won't say which one. And they asked if I would uh, consider making Giselle. And I said, oh, Giselle, that's a ballet piece. Uh, uh, it's the, one of the most romantic ballets. I'll, I'll do some studying. I'll study it. Within the same... I was still in Japan and then another phone call came from another artistic director of another ballet company who said, would you do Giselle? I'm like, what is this thing about Giselle? I've never been asked to do a ballet piece, let alone twice Giselle. The third time it happened, I started to get suspicious. So it was three artistic directors within the same month asking for me to do Giselle. And I said, fuck it, I've got to see this Giselle. What is it that what, what, they think I look like Giselle? I don't know what it is. So um, Maybe you run like Giselle. <laughs> yeah, maybe. The fourth time, it was Tamara. And she was the last one yeah. of the four in terms of the timeline. And she said, I'd love you to do Giselle. And I said, well, I'm definitely going to see, see it. And I, and I remember having a guess after seeing it why they might have asked me. And so I went back to Tamara and I went back to another artistic, two artistic directors, Tamara and another one. And I said, why do you think that I would be... He said for, he and she said for the second half. Both Tamara and this guy said for the second half. And I said, what is it about the second half? Is it the spiritual? And he, they said, yeah. Mm. Because your work, um, um, uh, most, all your work is about life and death and about time and about the spiritual. It's the spiritual side. And they knew that I was a huge fan of Rumi mm -hmm. uh, all my life, really. Um, so they thought I could perhaps maybe add something to the second half to use that as a starting point. And so that's how I came across doing Giselle. And it was, um, I saw the original classical version. And, you know, doing Giselle in England, if you're going to tamper with something, being brown skin, um, Giselle is the English romantic, the most romantic, the most sacred ballet out of all the ballets, especially in England. So there's this patronage that comes with it to the point where the critics um, come to me and say... Uh, I remember the critics who've known me for years, they're just like, why are you doing Giselle? Um, and I'm like, because I was asked to. And I said, yeah. But why you? Like they couldn't completely, they could not understand the connection of why Giselle and me. Um, and that really made me think this is a reason to do Giselle. Because there's something, not racist, but there's something going on here where it belongs to a particular community of people. 
And the classical ballet world is definitely a community of people. That is very different to the contemporary. And the classical world has opened up to the contemporary because they need us. Because the classical ballet world serves the rich. It is for the rich society. It reflects um, the culture of the rich. Contemporary is the underground. So, you know, it was really interesting to even feel that from a critic. (laughs) That who are you? Yeah, you are Indian classical dancer, you're a contemporary dancer, we love you, we give you awards, but who are you to touch our sacred Giselle? This is the classical ballet world. But um, the, the ballet world has picked up that they cannot survive if they don't start asking contemporary choreographers to revitalize uh, or to bring in new stuff, mm-hmm. you know, new, new information, new ways of doing things. So I came at a moment where it was really <laughs> great for me because I thought, well, this is an opportunity to, to um, see what would happen with what I do. But then when I met the ENB, I realized that this group of warriors, because they're highly skilled and highly trained ballet dancers, you know, it's like military. It's, it's, um, I wish we could have as many classical Indian dancers um, support uh, infrastructure for those Indian classical dancers the way the ballet dancers do. Um, it's very wealthy. <laughs> so um, there is really this... Uh, yeah, I was in awe of them. But what I made a decision... Before I, uh, before I went into the studio the first day, I, I said to myself, if, if, they, if I create something that when I see them or people see them, they go, people go, well, actually, um, Akram Khan's company well, dancers would have done it better. Mm-hmm. Then I would have failed. So am I going to impose everything as I would do with my own company? Or... Shall I meet them halfway? Mm-hmm. Because they have a language that I've not explored yet. I mean, I've worked with Sylvie, but that's not, right. that's not uh, a ballet company. <laughs> She's a sp- very specific special artist. So um, I said to the dancers, okay, let's meet halfway. But I, I made a bit of controversy in the beginning because the first day we when, was in the studio, we were in the studio, there was a lot of people, so it was quite intimidating there was not just the 65 dancers. There was, um, you know, the max we go with contemporaries, what, 10, 12, 16? You know, you have around 50 to 60 dancers. Um, you had the entire staff of the NB, which was uh, about uh, 70 or 80 people. Then you had the, some of the orchestra people. So it was a very stuffy room. You know, there was a few hundred people there. Um, and the first thing I said was, okay, so... There's no hierarchy. Everyone's a Giselle. And in the ballet world, there is a real vertical, um, patriarchal system. There can be only one. There can, yeah. Principals, soloists, uh, it just goes on and on. And then there's the corps de ballet. And then there's the characters as well, character performers. And I just turned it, tilted it this way on the opening night, uh, open, first day of rehearsal. And I said, Everyone is a Giselle. Of course, I knew that I was going to take one person as the main character. But what I was trying to say was I was trying to liberate the others to say, you matter to me equally as much as every single part of the show matters to me as much as Giselle does. If anything, more than Giselle does. 
the problem I find sometimes is we look at the main character. Um, because it's like a film. The camera says, I want you to see this. If the director wants you to see this, the camera will pin on just this. What I'm always interested in is everything around that. So whenever I see the main character, I never watch the main character. My mother always says to me, because we used to watch Bollywood films when we were growing up. My mother used to work in um, Decca Records. So uh, uh, they used to be records in those days. <laughs> and um, LPs. And So she used to um, she used to steal, I think. But she doesn't say steal. She says they gave it to me. But I'm not sure that's true. But they used to give her these records that she used to come home with from work that were scratched, that were not properly made. And so... Um, above my dad's restaurant, my dad's playing Bollywood films on one side of the room, living room. My mother's playing Tom Jones and Cliff Richards and all those kind of artists and ABBA. Wow, ABBA. And so you had this clash between Bollywood and ABBA that was really fascinating. Um, but my mother and I used to watch Bollywood films as well. Sometimes we would give in to my father and we'd watch Bollywood films, but we would turn the voice off because we've seen the same video so many times. So we would start lip syncing. We would start adding the voiceover and changing the story. So if it's Shole, at some point, um, the the baddie, Shole is a, a kind of Indian Western, uh, you know, spaghetti Western kind of thing, spaghetti Indian thing, uh, film. And uh, I would slowly deviate it towards ET because ET was a big thing for me at that time. It was the first of its kind. Um, but we would time it perfectly because we knew the, the speech, the, the Hindi, perfectly. Right. We'd seen it so many times. So um, uh, I've lost why I'm talking about E.T. <laughs> <laughs> so focus on a main character. Yeah, so my mother would always say, look at everything around the main character. It's not the main character that matters. The main character is only the main character because of its surrounding. You are who you are because of your surrounding. So I'm brown when I'm in the playground of my school in Wimbledon. But I'm a son when I'm in my parents' house. The moment I exit my parents' house, I become British. Inside, I'm Bangladeshi. The moment I exit, I'm a British boy. Um, I'm a kind of leader when I'm with my company in my office. I'm a choreographer when I'm at EMB. Mm -hmm. Your identity changes and transforms um, or is specific depending on which environment you're in. So uh, for me, she was always telling me, look at everything else around the main character because that's what makes the main character who they are. And so I've always, that, that approach, I, uh, that way of thinking uh, is what I kind of announced to the ENB staff and the people. And of course there was, uh, there was kind of this, <gasps> you know, the principals were like, Oh my God. Um, I mean, they didn't say it like that, but I don't know why I'm doing that. But they, they were, they were really kind of um, flustered. There was a lot of, um, you know, uh, uh, anger and worry, but there was, the ENB is such an amazing, um, Damara has really created a wonderful environment. Uh, and I was really surprised. I was. I, I love. I love working with ENB because they, they were like, "Oh my god, oh my god!" But let's do this. Mm -hmm. Let's do this. And they really believed in. They really trusted me. And that's really hard because um, uh, 
you know, it's it's somebody who does something else. Zenos. I'm a Zenos to them. Yeah. I'm a stranger because I don't, even though I've done classical Indian dance, I'm not a classical ballet. I haven't spent my life doing classical ballet. And here's this guy coming in um, to lead us. And at the same time, the, but the first thing I say is, can you teach me? Because the moment I give them permission, the moment I say, can you teach me? They don't close their fists or their body they open the hand to extend their hands out to me. Mm-hmm. And that's my tactic, if you like, my way of um, um, bringing people into the project. Because it's too easy for me to go, I know what I'm doing, you're just here to serve. That's too easy. It's, uh, then it's not a collaboration. Collaboration means different things to different generations as well. Mm-hmm. We had a very uh, famous quote happen on our stage with... Uh, from the composer John Adams, when he was sitting with his collaborators, Listen to Childs, and um, uh, Frank Gehry talking about Available Light, and he, he openly said to an audience um, among, you know, among artists, um, the, the two, uh, short, short of murder-suicide, the worst thing any two people can do to each other is collaborate. Um, and um, I, I, that one stuck with me for that reason. And, and on that note... Um, that's very... That's exa- he summed it up. He absolutely said because that is, it is the hardest thing in, in any form to accomplish. It is a particular generation, yeah. I think. Yeah. Um, Larbi, Sidi Larbi, Hofesh, yeah. Crystal Pike, we're a different generation, a different breed, because we grew up with, you know, contemporary dance um, masters like Martha Graham, they're not superstars. They're only superstars in their own field. Hmm. But it's our generation that embraced other genres. We started stepping out of contemporary dance. We're the first generation that stepped out of contemporary dance where visual arts people know us, theatre people know us. Do you know what I mean? Because we grew up with this kind of MTV world. We grew up with Michael Jackson. We grew up with Charlie Chaplin. We grew up with Bruce Lee. We grew up with Muhammad Ali. Um, And there was craft in all... We recognised craft in all of them. So stepping out of contemporary dance doesn't demean or doesn't lower what we do, even if it's more accessible. So relatable or accessible or universal doesn't mean because you know I grew up in, when I went into contemporary arts there was this elitism mm-hmm. that I hated where we're the elite and if a taxi driver can understand what you're doing you're not making good art <laughs> and I remember preparing for the Olympic opening ceremony and I was taking a taxi and the taxi driver this one particular taxi driver said to me oh what are you um, what are you doing over there in the, in the thing I said oh I'm doing dance choreographing. And I didn't want to talk too much about it because I didn't know what he would think. And he said, what kind of dance do you do, mate? And I was like, um, uh, contemporary dance. And he went quiet. And I thought, okay, that's the end of the conversation. As we arrived to the stadium to do the rehearsal, he said, I know what dance you do. And I said, you do? And he goes, yeah, it's the dance you don't get. <laughs> so that was my f- challenge to say, well, how do I make something that can affect this person? Because why is he any less knowledgeable or less sophisticated than anybody else? Right. That's our generation. It's, I hate to do this. It's one thirty, But you are amazing, folks. It's been amazing to have you here and hear you talking. I, I, shutting you down is like the worst thing I've ever had to do in my life, in addition to murder-suicide. Um, <laughs> Thank you both so much for what you had to say today. Thank you, everyone, for coming. Very grateful. Thank you. Thank you.